Welcome, fellow plebs. My name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. Today, I want to talk about class, solidarity, and the labor struggle. I'm going to argue that the way we use class in the United States is purposefully misleading, purposefully vague, and ultimately destructive. Class, when defined properly, is an incredibly important concept, but as we will see, the way that we talk about class here in the United States, it borders on gibberish. Terms like the middle class and upper middle class are absolute nonsense. The key to making real lasting change in this country is the working class, the vast amounts of wage workers who truly make this country run and generate value all throughout the economy. And for that key to be cut, we must recognize this and to put that key in the lock, we must organize workers and to turn that key, we must all turn it together. We can't do any of this without understanding class and solidarity. I've used the term class a lot in previous episodes and think it's a subject worth discussing both because I refer to it so much and also because it is deserving of some investigation in its own right. The way I usually use class is different from how most Americans talk about class, and I feel that the way I use it is far more important and far more useful than the more general usage of the term. The way I use the term class is using the Marxist idea of it. The way a lot of other people use it is, I mean, well, it's just a mishmash of nonsense for various reasons, which I'm going to briefly talk about. But be warned, this will not be an academic discussion of class. This is a, you know, more of a personal thing the way I think about it and talk about it as it relates to the world in general, and labor specifically, not a study of Marx in some strict sense. So why is the way class is used in the States and even in Europe such a bad thing? Well, in the States, we tend to use class in a financially defined sort of form. We have the poor, the working poor, the working class, Lower, middle, middle class, upper, middle class, upper class, upper class, upper, upper class, wealthy, upper wealthy, super wealthy, mega wealthy, and on and on and on. In fact, you can sort of create as many classes as you want because you're just making stuff up at this point. Class, in this sense, lacks any sort of defining characteristics. As a case in point, Take a second to think about what defines middle class in the United States in your own mind. Pause the episode here if you need to. Grab a pen, grab some paper, and jot it down if you want. The interesting thing here is, for the listeners out there, none of them will have the same answers because it is an utterly undefined term, or at least not definable in a way that you know everyone will agree with. Seriously, though, what is exactly the middle class. We hear people talking about the middle class all the time, and we kind of nod our heads along and think like, yeah, okay, I get it. And we may, in a super general sense, 
kind of understand what they're talking about, but we also kind of really don't. And the people talking about the middle class know that we don't really know what they're talking about. And this is, in the end, really what they want. Because when they say stuff like the middle class is shrinking or more and more people are falling out of the middle class, they aren't making defined arguments here. They're relying on our emotions and our arrogance and our ignorance to some extent to get us to include ourselves in the middle class for them, to get us to self-identify and become victimized and angry at some others out there, some other workers, for supposedly ruining our lives. Some person making 30000 a year and living in an apartment might consider themselves part of the middle class and start to believe that they are the ones falling out of the middle class. And some person making $1.2 million a year has a financial advisor tell them that they shouldn't buy that second speedboat, and that person thinks that they are falling out of the middle class. And even when people do define what they mean by the middle class, it's usually absurd. TV news talkers will claim that the middle class is anyone making 40000 to $2 million a year. Yeah, that happened. That was their definition of the middle class. I saw an article saying that the middle class was 80k to 500,000. A study I read used 50,000 to 150,000. So again, what the hell is the middle class? The other way we sometimes define middle class is by focusing on things like lifestyle and conspicuous consumption. Because going only off of income levels doesn't really work because Something like $50,000 a year in Moose Tracks, North Dakota, and in Manhattan, they are orders of magnitude different from one another. 50000 in some tiny North Dakota town might be a very comfortable life, while in Manhattan, it might mean sleeping in a closet in a tiny basement apartment that you share with five other people. And I never lived in Manhattan. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but probably not by much. So instead of using a purely financial description, we look at lifestyle. Do you have a safe, clean place to live? Enough food? Maybe you consider that middle class. Maybe to somebody else, to be middle class, you need, you know, to live alone, have a car, maybe a yard, maybe that boat or something else. Hell, maybe, you know, just having a second story or a hot tub matter here. The point is, middle class still remains undefinable. Or at the very least, the definition is so malleable that it can mean almost anything to anyone, and it can include everybody or nobody, depending on the speaker's needs. And this malleability, this lack of permanence and definition, it allows powerful people to weaponize the term and divide us with it. And hello there, everybody. As most of you probably know, this podcast takes a lot of time and effort to put together and, you know, to get out there for you good folks to listen to. And you, our listeners, can help us by liking and subscribing on YouTube. So please take a second to click those little buttons. It helps a ton. And if you are feeling just a little bit more generous and you enjoy what we do here at Tribunus Plebis Media, 
you can help us earn just a little bit of money for the large amount of labor that we put into this thing by signing up on our Buy Me A Coffee page, where you can make a one-time donation or sign up for a recurring monthly subscription. We do all of this for free, and we will never run ads in our works. But any contributions really do help keep the show going and improving. The page address is buymeacoffee.com slash tribunusplebis. And of course, all links will be in the show notes and descriptions wherever you are listening or watching. Thank you. And now, back to the episode. Because of all of this, because of the ill-defined nature of the American form of class, it has no agency. And by lacking agency, it lacks any purpose. And by lacking any purpose, then it has, to put it simply, no real politics. Think about that. Think about how terms like the middle class and the upper class lack defining characteristics, and consider how this extremely vague sort of rhetoric completely and utterly fails to create any sort of unified purpose. That connection is both important and intentional. So how does the Marxist version of class help alleviate a lot of these problems? Well, first and foremost, it creates a definition of class that is much, much easier to define and therefore much, much easier to use to classify people and much easier to use to talk about issues in this world. In this sense, class is defined by your relation to the means of production. On the most basic level, if you own the means of production, if you own the factory and the machines and you, if you hire workers, If you pay people wages to do work for you, you are part of the bourgeoisie. And if you're a wage worker and therefore not owning the means of production, you are the proletariat. Marx envisioned these two classes in a perpetual struggle of sorts, the bourgeoisie fighting to maintain their status, their wealth, and their power. On the other end struggled the proletariat, the plebs, struggling for fair wages, any sort of power at all, and the means to simply survive the day. What this arrangement results in is that when 90% of people are working to build things and keep things moving and keep them together, they don't get the full value of the output of that labor. And then the other 10%, and these numbers I'm making up, by the way, I'm not sure what it would actually be, but these 10% of people don't work, and they get most of the value of the labor of those who do work. This is the class hierarchy at play. This is really the core of Marx's idea, I think, that the majority of workers produce a surplus, and this surplus doesn't go to the workers themselves, but rather it goes to the parasitic class which sits above them in the hierarchy, the bourgeoisie. So I think that this is a much, much better way to to talk about class. It is readily definable, it's relatively static, and it's pretty clear where people sit. No talking head can go on TV and massage the definition enough to convince a factory worker that they own the means of production and are therefore bougie as hell. No, definitionally, they are workers. They are proles. They are the plebeians, and they know it. I know it. We know it. I think that Michael Zwieg, I think that's how you pronounce it, author of the Working Class Majority, summed it up pretty well with this, quote, By looking only at income or lifestyle, 
We see the results of class, but not the origins of class. We see how we are different in our possessions, but not how we are related and connected and made different in the process of making what we possess. End quote. Poverty and riches are not markers of class, but rather they spring forth from class itself. And yeah, sure, there will always be edge cases. I guess, you know, this is something which can't be avoided, but we shouldn't let ourselves get too bogged down in that. Is a brain surgeon making $700,000 a year working in a major city hospital, middle class or upper middle class or upper class or something else? Well, it depends on who you ask in America, right? Is that same surgeon bourgeoisie or proletariat? Marx has an answer, and it's prole. I think. I'm pretty sure, at least, and I await the screaming Marxist to tell me that I am wrong. But I think that's right. Now, I've seen people subdivide even Marx's class theory here into many subdivisions, but I think only two are worth talking about because they come up a lot. So I'm just going to talk about them real quick. The petite bourgeoisie and the lumpen proletariat. Petite bourgeoisie refers to small business owner types, and it just means small bourgeoisie, small capitalists. This is the lady who owns a coffee shop down the street and employs a handful of people. Personally, I don't find this particular category overly important for day-to-day stuff and not really for what I'm talking about here. It has its own uses, but I mostly avoid it. When people use this term, I find that it's almost always used with a little venom put behind it. Like some guy they talked to said they don't like unions, so they are castigated as petite bourgeoisie liberal dirtbags or something. And then we have the lumpen proletariat, which refers essentially to all those who can't or won't become class conscious. And we're going to talk about class consciousness here in a little bit. The lumpen is, as far as my reading has led me, a relatively controversial class of people, as far as, you know, definition. Not everyone defines it quite the same, but the gist remains. The relative Dregs of society and just generally alienated people uh, can be included here. So all that said, we don't have to go too much deeper because, to be honest, this episode isn't really about you know a deep understanding of either of these last two terms. I just thought it would be an interesting add-on. I'd love to do a deeper dive on class in like you know a more definitional and nuanced sense at some point because there can be a lot of nuance here. But this just isn't the episode for that. Anyway, I hope that wasn't, you know, too far of a sidetrack here. So this is the definition of class that I work with. I do still sometimes fall back into using the terms like middle class and upper class and such because, you know, I did grow up in the States and some habits are harder to break than others. But when I talk about class in most of my episodes, just class or class consciousness, this is what I'm uh, referring to. So how does all of this relate to labor in the organizing sense? Well, to me, the key thing here is power, and that really should be the primary thing that we focus on, in my opinion. And before I go on, I want to note that I'm talking about power, not amounts of money. And I think that matters. I think that talking about how, you know, this person shouldn't have X amount of money is, you know, both true, but also a little bit of a dead end. Too many don't understand what we mean when we say that. 
But if you say that no singular person should hold this much disproportionate power, well, that tends to hold a little more weight with most people. They tend to understand what you're trying to say. And currently, the vast majority of power lies with capital. Of course it does. We can see this in how much an individual wealthy person can influence entire elections. How they can almost single-handedly take control of a town or even a large portions of a city, uh, you know, like we covered in our philanthropy episode, which you should go back and listen to that. It was a good episode, I thought. We also see it in how corporations have now been deemed people and how money has been declared speech. And we see how these two changes alone give billionaires literally billions of times more power than even hundreds of thousands of poor people combined. The working class, the proletariat, is the single group of people who can actually exert enough leverage to counteract this massive anti-democratic weight. This power is inherent in exactly who we are and where we exist, in opposition to the bourgeoisie. We can see, for example, how the wealthy and powerful battle so hard to end social welfare programs, social programs, health, and working conditions. When they aren't straight up resisting them, they are trying to privatize them, basically take them away and sell them to the plebs to suck up even more of their wages than they were able to via employment, while also providing less and less services than ever before. Now, because of this immense amount of power that the wealthy and business concerns are able to exert upon the country, the state itself becomes either fully subservient to capital, or at the very least, it becomes partnered with it, regardless of whether it wanted to or not. Because of this sort of symbiotic, I guess, relationship, the state becomes overly concerned with what business and billionaires want. The state, if it's captured in this particular way by capital, will remain hostile to labor because the state, in this instance, is reliant on and subservient to capital. The only way to make changes in a system like this is to somehow overcome both capital and the state. And the only people who can do that are the people, the proletariat, the plebeians, the plebs. This is just a historical fact. So the goal then is to organize the proletariat into a class-conscious group. Class-conscious, not political party-conscious, not wealth-conscious, class-conscious. In my opinion, labor organizing is the best way to achieve this end, or at least one of the best among a small handful of options at least, and I find this theory of class and labor to be intrinsically linked. And one thing I want to mention here is stuff like organizations and proletarian parties, I'm not ignoring them right now out of any judgment. I'm just focusing on unions and labor organizing here. Larger national political organizations certainly do have a place here. They are, at least to my eyes, great for creating focus and helping guide and even helping catalog events and, you know, remembering them for the future. Institutional knowledge, I guess. Anyway, I wanted to get that little nod in here before continuing on, and this is yet another subject I may cover in the future, but on with the uh, main theme here. Some of the greatest benefits we've seen in this country from this sort of solidarity and consciousness arose in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and were responsible for enormous breakthroughs of a democratic nature. 
Often we see people talking about the eight-hour workday, sick leave, vacation time, safety, overtime, and so forth as the good parts of our labor movement. And sure, they're right when they say that. But there were even deeper and more fundamental advancements as well. Things like universal suffrage and civil rights and civil liberties. The IWW was actually on the front line of actual free speech battles. Like real battles. Getting beaten by police and arrested along the way. You know, to help reaffirm our First Amendment protections as just one obvious example here. Now, the first thing I want to say here is that some people view unionization as the be-all, end-all, and others ignore it entirely. Personally, I reject the latter sentiment, even as I wish my friends, you know, well with their programs. The former, I accept without question. Union forming absolutely is not the be-all, end-all of change, but it is a decent beginning. I do, however, view it as one of the best ways to generate true solidarity and reap the rewards which that cooperation can grow. Unionization forces people who would likely never hang out to coexist and work together for a common cause. Studies have shown reductions in classism, in the American version of class that is, and even a reduction in racism, not to mention cultural understandings between different groups. This is yet another thing I'd really like to dig into more at some point, and I think this is the second or third time I've brought it up in an episode, and it's worth focusing on. Um, but this alone, this idea that by working for a common cause, by rowing together, as they say, you know, with a unified goal, and officially connected to each other via a union, all connected to a common goal and direction, that's a big damn deal, I think, in regards to this. I like to think about class consciousness in conjunction with solidarity, which some purists might not cotton to, but that's okay. This is my personal theory here, I guess. So, class consciousness and solidarity. How do we generate it, especially within the workplace? Personally, I do my best to lead with empathy and follow with kindness. For sure, I often fail. You know, I work in a pretty toxic industry, trucking and I work in a pretty demoralized location of a pretty bad company. I fall prey to that lack of morale, the frustration, the exhaustion, and the fear. I sometimes even lash out, if I'm being honest with all of you. I'm human, we're all human, but I walk in every day really, you know, determined to do my best, and I usually succeed. And, you know, I think that we all usually succeed. We just tend to obsess over the times that we fail. So this sort of solidarity, it doesn't just spring from the ground like purified water. It takes a lot of work. It takes action. It takes actually talking to coworkers. As a natural and pretty strong introvert, both of those things absolutely terrify me. So I understand a lot of people's natural reticence here. But this is what it takes. And hey, if we can't bring ourselves to do the talking, we can support those who tend more naturally to that aspect of organizing. We can write, hand things out, encourage, and so on. We are all in these terrible situations. We lack money, we lack support, we lack predictability, and we tend to fall back on culturally reinforced individualistic solutions. 
rather than working together. And this prevents us from becoming fully conscious of our standing in life. And even as we do that, and we receive the occasional mutual aid or even just a sympathetic ear, we still frame this in an individual way. Every single day we go to work as proletarians, our jobs are actively trying to destroy solidarity. They are making decisions with the purposeful intent to keep their workers divided. They want us to consider our co-workers as our enemies. They want us to view anything a co-worker gets, like a raise or a day off, you know, as something we are losing. They want us to fight like dogs for scraps, all the while pushing for us to be more productive and more efficient. They do their best to keep us poor and overworked, but not too uniquely skilled and valuable to the company that we would suddenly have individual leverage. Other workers, even our co-workers, are, our bosses tell us, competitors. But they aren't. Those people are our brothers and sisters. They are our comrades. What the bosses don't tell us, and what I think is incredibly important to understand and remember, is that ever since the world industrialized, and more specifically really since capitalism took root, the single best way for workers to not just get more money or a safer workplace or better benefits, but to protect their very well-being, their very life, their humanity even, is by coming together in solidarity and fighting for their dignity. But how do we organize each other in spite of all the barriers we face? In fact, you know what, let's mention a few of the roadblocks that our bosses put in place to keep us apart. First and foremost, they can fire us. And let's not sugarcoat exactly how awful this can be. Losing our job could cost us our home and even our family. This is no minor threat. If I get too mouthy about a union, my workplace can fire me without cause. I do not work at a union shop, by the way. We had a drive, but it fell apart and didn't make it to a vote, something which irks me to this very day, and I hope to rectify at some point soon. But yeah, they can fire us for even considering it. So how do we convince our workers to even discuss unionizing when the prospect of being fired is a sword of Damocles hanging over our heads? How do we do it when it requires after-hours effort from people already strung too thin between work, families, and just trying to be human and have friends and hobbies? I mean, how do we convince people who are often struggling to get by financially to risk even paying dues to a union with no guarantees? Well, it starts with talking. And that starts with being brave. And maybe, you know... Silly as that sounds, just being brave ourselves is a big key to getting the ball rolling. Because of the ability and the absolute willingness of bosses to fire us for even speaking about certain things, this naturally leads to many co-workers, even those who see the world as we do, to simply just work. To keep their heads down, avoid us if we try to talk to them about organizing and just collecting their checks. This is a natural reaction, and we shouldn't castigate people who are trying to just get by. The prospect of losing our job truly is scary, 
It really is. It honestly terrifies me because I'd be screwed on a personal level, right? But this just means that those of you, you know, willing to speak up need to speak up. If you're in a position where you can be loud, be loud. But I also want to be clear here. If you are in a precarious situation and you don't feel like you can speak out or be visible organizing, I think that we all understand. Personally, I'm brave in some ways at work. I'll argue with the bosses and stand up for people being bullied and call people out if they say racist or sexist or just bigoted things. These things I'm pretty good at. But talking to people, especially people I don't necessarily like, I'm not so brave anymore. And it also involves stepping up and helping our coworkers in creating the solidarity culture that I'm talking about. Is the boss hollering at somebody over something small? Tell the boss to back off and take your coworkers side. Support your fellow workers. It's pretty simple. Coworkers are not our competitors. They are our allies, our comrades. We share a common identity, a common cause, and a common enemy even if they don't always see it the same way you do. This is class consciousness, at least in its most core definition, in my opinion. This is solidarity. And I can tell you something that is 100% an actual fact. Our bosses, the same people who tell us not to organize, who encourage us to be blind to class and try to undermine our solidarity, these people are the most solidaristic people on the entire planet. They are definitely working together, working hand in hand, and having solidarity to destroy our leverage. Warren Buffett was quoted in a news story a few years back, noting that there was absolutely a class war going on, but that the wealthy were the only ones actively fighting in it, and they were winning. On our end, we don't have to stop thinking about ourselves as dads, daughters, sons, husbands, and so forth. But we definitely should consider ourselves part of something bigger, part of the working class, and we need to build the bonds necessary to encourage it and sustain it. And I think that this next quote is important because of how it frames properly, I think, the idea that even the Marxist idea of class is rooted just as much in cultural milieus as it is, you know, in a strictly rational and crisply defined sort of way. Quote, The mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. End quote. Class does not exist within a vacuum. It exists within social and cultural currents. We can't separate that any more than we can our decisions from our emotions. That these will eventually unify and lead to a certain outcome certainly isn't out of the question. This is Marx's idea, after all. And I guess the point of all of that is to say this. Simply defining class and having everyone agree and correctly identify themselves within that class, this doesn't mean that they will automatically all agree on some certain set of principles. Even if everybody who should identify as a proletariat does, there must also be a pointed effort to actually create a proper culture 
within that group. It won't spring from the ground on its own. All right, so we understand class, class consciousness, and solidarity at least a little bit, I hope. So then what and why? Organize, unite, and fight, of course. Organizing a conscious labor sector fundamentally alters the balance of power in a country. It achieves real power versus capital. It achieves an ability to actually alter political power and begin to pry the avaricious claws of corporations and the mega wealthy from the necks of the state. After all, any concession of capital is a concession to the state while they are still attached to each other. A united labor movement doesn't in and of itself actually alter the system or anything that grand, but it does truly change the balance of power between the workers and capital, meaning that it puts the fear of a strike into them, at the very least, which is a very powerful lever to hold in labor's hand. This sort of fear then creates a reality where unions can pull concessions from capital, and this then encourages the state to take note and go along as they watch their puppet master CEO dorks alter their course. Not because the state is good in this case, they will in fact attack the workers here, but because they serve the same motives as capital. Refusing to work harms both sides of this worst-ever conjoined twin of capital and state. Yes, even the most conservative governments must reconsider when they are presented with a conscious, united labor movement that is willing to withhold their labor and take control over their own lives and the conditions under which they labor. They would have no choice, really, but to accede to the demands. And they know this, and they do not like it. So rather than allow it to happen, they prevent it from happening. Instead of fighting, they deflect our anger. They hide the bougie problems behind a gauzy screen and they decorate it with patriotic bunting and they set out a buffet of cakes and wine and every time someone tries to peek behind the curtain, you know, like a naked person with a sparkler runs by to draw their attention back to the farce. This deceit is merely superficial, but it tends to fool us, much like the Old West facades in movies do. The curtains to those it fools, becomes, you know, kind of a barrier. All problems stop at the curtain. If the problem remains when they reach the curtain, then that's just how life is, they think. I mean, you know, they've reached the curtain and the buffet. What more can they do, right? And I guess this, you know, probably terrible metaphor that I'm torturing to my own embarrassment here is replacing ideology and social culture, you know, with this curtain. And much like ideology and cultural norms, the curtain will not open on its own to reveal anything. It must be forced. But once forced, the reality cannot be unseen. And I'll end here on these last few notes in two quotes. To make any serious changes on a systemic level, it requires the people, the working class, the proletariat, the plebeians. No other force in this country can do what this group can do. But the answer does not lie in reactionary populist nationalism backed by jingoism and xenophobia. It lies in class consciousness, solidarity, and acceptance. Quote, The Tribune of the People, 
who is able to react to every manifestation of tyranny and oppression, no matter where it appears, no matter what stratum or class of the people it affects, who is able to generalize all these manifestations and produce a single picture of police violence and capitalist exploitation, who is able to take advantage of every event, however small, in order to set forth before all his socialist convictions and his democratic demands, in order to clarify for all and everyone the world-historic significance of the struggle for the emancipation of the proletariat. End quote. The Tribunus Plebes must represent all plebeians, not just the convenient ones, or the easy ones, or the most affected, and they must discuss and cast light on it and make proof of it to show everyone the struggle for all so that all might come together. The name of this podcast means the Tribune of the People, which Lenin referenced in that quote. No, I am not calling myself the embodiment of that quote, merely that I share the same aims, to cast light on oppression, bigotry, racism, sexism, and all the rest, and to try to show the significance of who we are as workers and what we mean to each other and the world. And it is, in my opinion, that one of the best possible ways to engender this sort of consciousness and solidarity is by organizing the working class via unions. No, it's not the only way, but it is an exceptionally effective one. Not only does unionization tend to bring workers to solidarity through its own internal machinations such as meetings, contract negotiations, grievances, and so forth, but it has also been shown to lower racial tensions amongst workers, cultural tensions, and even economic tensions. Every individual on the shop floor is just as powerless as anyone else when the big boss, the owners, the capitalist, the bourgeoisie, when they abuse their power and dictate workers' lives. But when banded together, when class conscious, and when bound by solidarity and their union strong, the workers suddenly hold the power and can demand change, not just in that one building, but all across the land. Now the second quote. Within the capitalist system, all methods for raising the social productiveness of labor are brought about at the cost of the individual laborer. All means for the development of production transform themselves into means of domination over and exploitation of the producers. They mutilate the laborers into a fragment of a man, degrade him to the level of an appendage of a machine, destroy every remnant of charm in his work, and turn it into a hated toil. They estrange from him the intellectual potentialities of the labor process in the same proportion as science is incorporated in it as an independent power. They distort the conditions under which he works, subject him during the labor process to a despotism the more hateful for its meanness. They transform his lifetime into working time and drag his wife and child beneath the wheels of the juggernauts of capital. But all methods for the production of surplus value are at the same time methods of accumulation, and every extension of accumulation becomes again a means for the development of those methods. It follows, therefore, that in proportion as capital accumulates, 
the lot of the laborer, be his payment high or low, must grow worse. The law, finally, that always equilibriates the relative surplus population or industrial reserve army to the extent and energy of accumulation, this law rivets the laborer to capital more firmly than the wedges of Vulcan did Prometheus to the rock. It establishes an accumulation of misery corresponding with accumulation of capital. Accumulation of wealth at one pole is, therefore, at the same time, accumulation of misery, agony of toil slavery, ignorance, brutality, mental degradation at the opposite pole, i.e., on the side of the class that produces its own product in the form of capital. Karl Marx, Capital, Volume 1. And that, my friends, is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, First, I want to apologize for how long this one took to get out. We had a little minor emergency. Our car died. So we've been stressing and searching for a car for like 10 days or something. And uh, it's it's literally the worst possible time in my entire life that you could be forced to buy a car. And we had to do it in, you know... (laughs) A record pace but anyway if you want to support the podcast you can go to the buy me a coffee page buymeacoffee.com slash tribunus plebis uh, of course there are links below in the description uh, if you're still listening on a platform please like subscribe comment uh, especially YouTube I'd love to get to 100 people on YouTube so I could upload a better quality video So, hey, just do me that favor. And, yeah, I think that's it, guys. Um, You know, sorry again. Uh, I'm trying to be a little little better on a schedule here, but this one just got away from me. So thank you, guys. I love you all. Bye.